0: All right, we're reading from Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither, whatever he does prospers. Not so the wicked, they are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but what the way of the wicked will perish. Good evening, my name's Jono. <laughs> uh, the faithful responders. <clears throat> well, I actually um, already have uh, feel blessed by having heard a good gospel reminder through communion and the words you had to share, Sam. So we could call it a night, but (laughs) um, I'll go on. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, you are great and kind. And it always amazes me, not just the bramble you found me as and what you were willing to do with me but what you were willing to do with so many the way you actually touched people's hearts and changed them and transformed them every story blows me away about your loving care that men can just talk about the love of God and the way that it slowly worked on their hearts until they were different people You are amazing and we long for you to be with us. We long to know you more, to know you more deeply, to know your love more strongly, that that love would be evident in our lives in the way that we love others, even those who hate us and mistreat us as you have shown us in Christ. Please strengthen us, please help us by your Holy Spirit to know you more. Please bless us this evening in your mercy and kindness. Amen. Psalm 1. Men have never been saved by law-keeping, but always by faith. And I hope as we look at this man in Psalm 1, who meditated day and night on the law of the Lord, it will become clear that the law, that's the first five books of the Bible, teach us of God's kindness, our need for mercy, hope for the future, kindness towards others, restraint against um, evil, wisdom, and indeed more than I understand or can explain today. Sometimes with the frequent use of words, language can lose its potency, becomes less meaningful. I've known folks who use the same cuss words for their friends and their enemies, and the only way you'd know the difference is the look on their face when they say it. I think this happens sometimes when we read the Bible. We can read about a blessed man and think not think much of it. But it's actually a wonderful expression. And I'll give this example. Imagine coming across a car accident, and just as panic starts to set into your heart about I'm just—I'm looking at the soldier as I say this. She's not worried. <laughs> you come across a car accident, and a panic starts to set into your heart. But as it does, you see—you hear the sirens and the, and the, and the lights flashing, emergency services roaring around the corner, and relief. You think, great, people who know what to do are here. So we who feel cursed can look to Him who is blessed. We find in this song, this psalm, someone who's blessed, who's flourishing, who's joyful, their face worn by God's smile. Not just any man, but a champion, a godly man. For that's the sense of the word in the Hebrew. Like our recent hero, Job, he's blameless and upright. One who fears God and turns away from evil. And this similarity shouldn't be overlooked. Because the hero we find in the psalms is the hero we find in Job. And both blessed men are known negatively and positively. Negatively in the things they don't do, and positively in the things they do. But before we go on, I want to draw attention to a few things about the way of evil. People don't usually take great leaps into deeds of villainy. Someone counsels them, and they listen, and take steps towards evil. Before long, they find themselves with like-minded group. They've chosen a side, they take a stand, and soon they'll be able to sit down and teach others about the dark path that they walk. It seems logical, therefore, to me, that the sooner you turn from a wrong path, the easier it will be, but to never start the journey is even better still. I also want to draw attention to what our psalm does not mention. I think it's helpful that we're not told the manner of evil. There's just a distinction between the way of the wicked and the way of the righteous, has more to do with the direction they are traveling, who they listen to, than anything else. Because elsewhere in scripture, we can read that all have sinned, all fall short of the glory of God. All men are wicked. And so I think we should ponder this distinction carefully and consider the path we're walking. But back to our champion, and we read of him in the positive. He shuns evil. But he delights, yes, he delights in the law of the Lord. Day and night, he chews it. You see him walking down the street, he's muttering to himself about it. You talk to him, he's talking to you about it. He loves it, he takes pleasure in it, he studies it. He's eager to learn. Now I know men who have taken great pains in shunning evil, quick to condemn, quick to judge, quick to correct. They avoid all vice and they make up some new advices just to avoid them. They're no danger of taking the wicked men's counsel because there's too much malice in their heart to ever, ever go near them. But here they come undone in regards to our champion. For it cannot be said that they delight in anything, yet alone to delight in God and his goodness. You shun evil, but do you delight in good. And I want to spend a little time here It says that our champion delights in the law of the Lord. And in one sense, that seems straightforward, right? But in another, it's not. In Jesus' famous sermon on the Mount, I think a similar difficulty arises. For he insists that the greatest of law keepers fall well short of God's standard of righteousness. And he encourages all his listeners, enter by the narrow gate, for the the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. I think a lot of people hear that and are tempted to think, the hard way must be keeping all the rules, obeying the law perfectly. That's a difficult task, an impossibly difficult task. And just like in our psalm, we can read, he delights himself in the law of the Lord, And we may be tempted to think, well, here's a fellow who does everything right. But let's consider it. Is it more common for people to think of themselves as good, to strive to be better than others, to think God is pleased with their efforts, performance, and good intentions? Or is it more common that men would take a knee, acknowledge their poverty before God, ask his pardon and mercy? Are men more likely to justify themselves or plead the goodness of the one they belong to? I hope the answer is obvious. Men would sooner justify themselves than admit their guilt and ask for mercy. And this was indeed the sin of Jesus' listeners, men who justified themselves before God. And yet Jesus has strong words for them. He calls them sons of the devil. And, it, and this is the very thing that the law teaches us. It's the law, remember, that introduces us to blood sacrifice, to atonement, to the innocent dying in the place of the guilty, the, un- the, un- the unblemished for the blemished. And yet it's even older than the law of Moses. At the very start of the Bible, we can read about Abel who made an offering from his flock. There's many purposes for law and the book of Galatians is a really good read. The law's more than instruction on how to set up the temple, pack up camp, treat infectious diseases, deal with the mould in your house. Firstly, it must be understood that the law never made anybody righteous. Indeed, the apostle Paul even writes so strongly as to say that if righteousness came through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. If you seek in any way to be made righteous through law keeping, you are sinning against Christ. I have an example. Uh, when I was young in my faith and uh, saw, <laughs> exuberant for a chat, <clears throat> I saw some Mormon fellows on the street and went to have a discussion with them. I said to them, uh, one day I'll be with God in heaven. And it's because of this reason, because I believe what God has said about his son, who he is, and what he's done. And uh, he outwitted me. <clears throat> He said to me, I believe that too, but I also have an apostle's baptism and I have these other laws and rules that I live by. It seemed a sound argument. (laughs) I have what you have and more. And yet it was what he had in surplus that was a snare to him. Amongst other things, But for this example, it's enough to say that we cannot have Christ's righteousness in our own, for one cancels out the other, and one's of eternal value, and one's utter rubbish. Or in the words of the prophet Isaiah, all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. Now our psalmist was a remarkable man, for he likely had a few scrolls, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the Torah, that's what it means when it talks about the law, the first five books of the Bible. And I want to meander through them. I want to see what we can glean. What did he delight himself in? Can we delight ourselves in those things too? Now, men of faith must have been one of those things. So let's consider, our, let's consider some of our champions. Let's go to the OG, Adam. <laughs> A man who did not merit his life nor the kingdom crown and title he received for he was the son of god the poor fella felt a little lonely so god gave him a companion when he was naked god clothed him when adam brought a curse on all mankind through his sin god made of him an example to teach us about jesus For if one sinful man can bring a curse on all who belong to him, so one blessed man can bring a blessing on all who belong to him. Noah, let us ignore the man and consider God who is both severe and kind. Humanity's wickedness actually grieves him. When men violently treat each other, it saddens and angers him. He washes men away, and yet not all. He spares Noah his family, and he cares about animals, too. And should men be afraid of being wiped out like this again, next time all we need do is look in the sky and see the bow that's painted there to put our minds at ease. Are these not things worth chewing? If you put food in your mouth but you spit it out, you'll never receive its nourishment. But as we learned in Job, not all things are easily understood. But to wait for God to speak will make a man wiser. Even Noah's sons are worth considering, that one son quickly ran to tell of his father's sins, but his other two sons were willing to cover his shame. I think the Old Testament is often misunderstood because we have a worldly view of it. Do good, receive good. And look, sometimes that's true. We read that on one mountain, blessings for those who obey. On the other mountain, curses for those who disobey. But what happens when one mountain is full and the other empty? Why does God choose a 90-year-old man to make a promise of children to? And not just an old man, but an old man with an old wife, whose childbearing years are behind her. This is such a good example of the narrow way Abraham and Sarah take matters into their own hands, and Ishmael is born, a son born of human effort. But Ishmael is not the promised one. Isaac is. What's not possible for man is possible for God. Have you ever pondered why God shared his plans of, of um, destroying Sodom and Gomorrah with Abraham? Here he is. He invites this man to come and intercede for this wicked city. Why did God send angels to see if it was really true about Sodom and Gomorrah? Surely God knew. And yet, if they hadn't gone, would Lot ever have been taken by the hand and rescued? A picture of judgment and mercy. What of baby Moses floating downstream? What kind of life did his mother imagine as she pushed his reed basket away from her? And yet this Egyptian-raised Hebrew, who struggled with a stutter, would be God's mouthpiece to his people. And the law he writes down for them doesn't even make it to the bottom of the mountain before it's broken. I love the martyr Stephen's sermon on this in the New Testament. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the Righteous One, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it." Let's have a little look at that law that they did not keep, the law of Moses. For I think there'll be things that surprise you. Perhaps there's more love in them than you saw at first glance. For example, it's written, If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. And is it talking about donkeys or an attitude of the heart towards even those who hate you? Love your enemies is not a New Testament teaching. And there was one. There was actually it was actually a, a, something that was kept from time to time. There's this wonderful story that I love in Kings. <clears throat> Excuse me. So Israel and Syria are at war, and Syria have surrounded one of Israel's cities. The prophet Elisha is in the city, and he prays to the Lord, and the Syrians are struck with blindness. And so the Israelites go out and go, come this way, fellas, this way. And all the Syrians follow follow along into the middle of the city until each one of them has an Israelite sword pointed at their throats. And then their sight comes back to them. Terror fills them. And the king says to Elisha, shall we slaughter them all? And Elisha says, no, get a table, set some chairs, put food and drink before them. They're our guests. Let's feast. And they feast. And they sleep, and the Syrians go home in the morning. And then there's peace between these two nations. Now, I know there's difficult laws to come to terms with, too. For example, in Numbers, you can read about a test for jealousy, where if a husband suspects his wife of infidelity, he can take her to the temple, and she drinks some bitter water. And if her flesh falls away, she was guilty. And if it doesn't, she was innocent. But laws sometimes uphold what is good, and other times restrain what is evil. We can read in Proverbs that jealousy makes a man furious, and he will not spare when he takes takes revenge. What better then to have a means by which to avoid such anger? Law is not one-dimensional. Sometimes it upholds what is good for all to see. Sometimes law restrains what is evil, preventing worse things to happen. Law often protects the vulnerable and also reveals the heart of the lawgiver. Look, I can't cover the law in a single sermon, nor am I able to. There's things I don't understand. Like Moses' law, that a man may give his wife a certificate of divorce, and yet, When Jesus comes, he says, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it's not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. I don't know what category of law that falls into, but it's still in itself something worth considering, isn't it? God's graciousness towards sinful people. There's not a steel trap behind every bad decision we make. And I find that a remarkable thing. Some people revile God for this, but perhaps they don't consider how this grace applies to themselves too. And it might at this point be worth remembering that God chose a point in time when men would take him, mock him, spit on him, curse him, whip him, and leave him to hang on a tree to die. And with some of his final words, he would say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Can we not see in all of this that God would rather forgive than punish, but that he does both? And look, I'd love to keep going on and talk about the year of jubilee. A celebration that I don't think Israel ever kept, where slaves are set free, debts are cleared, and the future hope that such a law provides. Imagine a time where the debt of sin is removed, the burdens of this life gone, when we can be truly free as brothers and sisters, without bitterness, without envy, without sorrow, celebrating, eating, and drinking together, with everything having been provided. I'm excited. I would love to spend time going over the laws that reveal god's heart for the poor and needy leviticus speaks of the kindness that israelites were supposed to show to each other not charging each other interest doing things without expecting anything in return the poor were to be provided for one's door was to be open to the needy until they got back on their feet and doesn't this tell us something of the lawgiver and his heart for the needy and the god we worship the one who we can read ate with sinners, healed the sick, fed the hungry, had compassion on the afflicted. The one who sat with a Samaritan woman at the well went to the house of a tax collector, let a sinful woman wash his feet with her tears and hair. We can read that those who meditate on such for, for those who meditate on such things, there's life. To delight yourself in the pages of Scripture is to delight yourself in the one of whom they speak. To do this is to be planted by streams of water, our psalmist writes. And a tree planted by a stream has what it needs to live. A tree that bears fruit is a healthy tree. And what I love about this analogy is that a a tree's fruit blesses others. Either its fruit falls to the ground and becomes another tree, or it's picked, plucked and eaten, whether by a man or a beast or a bird. And isn't it also so with us? Has God made us fruitful to look nice or with a purpose in mind? Surely it's for a purpose and it's the nourishment of others. But what about my own needs, one might say? And here it is worth noting something remarkable about this champion. It is predictable that a tree withers in the winter whether through frost, snow, cold, or wind, we do not expect the best of a tree when the elements are against it. Sun, water, good soil, that's when we expect a tree to flourish. But let me tell you of one whose leaf does not wither, and what he has cannot be taken from him. He's held in the palm of God's hand, and whether in poverty or riches, abundance or need, amidst persecutions, hardships, insults, and even calamity, he is content. For he he knows that no height, no depth, nothing in life or death, no power, no angel, no ruler, can separate him from the love of God that we now know is fully ours in Christ Jesus. Is it so with you? Please let it be so with you. For there is a day, our psalmist warns us, where there will be a clear distinction. For now the wheat grows with the weeds, the righteous live among the wicked. God seasons the earth with salt, and in dark places, light still shines. But it won't, also, won't always be like that. The wicked will be separated from the righteous, blown away like chaff. Do you delight in God? Do you shun evil? Are you a new creation, set to flourish and not wither, or part of the old, heading towards destruction? Choose the narrow way, not your way. Agree with what the law of the Lord teaches, that God is good and we need his forgiveness. Keep looking to the Lord. Don't depart from trust in him to trust in self. For one day it will not just be the wicked that perish, but their way will perish also. Like the crumbling of an empire to be remembered no more, so will be the way of of evil. And I fear that many on that road will have been excellent law keepers, but never planted by the river of life where real righteousness comes. Please pray with me. Lord Almighty, your streams, your rivers, are real rivers, the rivers of life that we need. There's so many temptations and phonies in this life. And we're glad to have heard of you and to know you and long for your name to be known further and further and more and more. Thank you for your grace towards us that wasn't just then and isn't just now, but will be always. Amen.